You're listening to the Passionate DJ Podcast, Episode 17. Welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast, where it's all about becoming a better DJ through passion and purpose. And now, your host, David Michael. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Today's episode is a just-for-fun show, and it's all about bad DJ gigs. So a couple of weeks ago, I sent out an email to my VIP list, which is my sort of email newsletter that my most uh, dedicated listeners and followers sign up for to keep up with happenings in the passionate DJ world and to receive inspirational stories and quotes and tips and information all geared towards becoming better DJs. And so I offered this question up to my list and asked, what is your worst, most awful, bad gig story? And in hopes that uh, the show would be generally light and lighthearted, and I think for the most part it is, there are a couple of moments that will make you perhaps a little upset or sad or angry if you put yourself in the position of the person who told the story. But I wanted to present all sides of this. You know, not everything's always uh, always sunshine and rainbows when it comes to performing or playing music. Obviously, the most important thing is to learn from our mistakes or from our you know rough situations that we've encountered out there in the wild when we're trying to do this thing. I'm sitting here. It's it's a beautiful early spring day, but here in Midwest Ohio, the weather has a way of sort of hanging around and and winter just kind of drags on for a few weeks and teases you back and forth until it really comes into play and you can really say yes it is in fact spring and we're finally getting to that point now and I just felt like it would be a really cool time to just you know have a fun show and just uh, sit back and do this for the entertainment value only so got a whole handful of great stories from you guys I want to start out with a story of my own, if I may, from, oh, this is a handful of years ago, back when I was first getting my feet wet as a digital DJ. I was playing at a local club before I had any kind of, I don't want to say following. Nobody really knew who I was from a DJ perspective. I had been producing for a while at that point, but never really promoted myself or anything like that. But I did have a handful of uh, just kind of what I called going out friends in the scene, as it were. And uh, so some of them showed up, and then a handful of my close friends showed up, and I got my girlfriend, who was, uh, we were pretty new in the relationship at the time, had her bring some of her friends, and so I just wanted to, you know, make that good first impression on this place and have somebody to play music to. And so I show up, and I'm setting up all my equipment, and I had a pretty... I guess I would call it a pretty ghetto setup at the time. It was uh, basically just a MIDI keyboard with a couple of knobs and sliders on it that I was using uh, basically as uh, to control the internal mixer in the saw. I think I was using Tractor at the time um, before Tractor Pro came out. It was old, old school Tractor. But then I had like this audio interface that was Firewire. It was a Motu, Mark of the Unicorn is what that stands for. Uh, It was a great device, but it's not really meant for DJing. Uh, It was more of uh, uh, for recording and capturing audio and uh, microphones and that sort of thing. So it has like eight inputs and it's just a big, it's like a rack mount 1U audio interface. 
but it's what I had. I had it for recording purposes and I didn't want to waste any more money. So I went ahead and brought that with me to my gig. So I show up, I hook it up to this old Dell laptop that I had, get everything set up, open up tractor, plug into the club's mixer, start playing some music, start cranking it up. And you know, the club's pretty empty. It's, uh, it's still pretty early. But then a few people start coming in. I'm getting a couple people tapping their feet and nodding their heads. And people who were trying to encourage me started coming around, you know, knowing that this was one of my first times playing. And they start coming around and telling me that I'm doing a great job and all this stuff. Well, one of my fiance's very best friends in the entire world came over to me to, to say something. Uh, I think just to give me a good job or something like that. And she leans over the DJ booth from the dance floor and somehow, I don't know if it caught on something on her clothing or if she grabbed it with her hand or what, but she just so happened to grab the firewire cable and yank it out of my laptop. Now, what you have to realize is that when this happens on a device like that, it doesn't just make the sound go away. If you have like a Control S4 or an Audio 8 or a, a Serato box or some other kind of audio interface, usually if you just yank it, your music software will stop playing and then you can plug the cable back in and it'll just kind of keep up, pick up where it left off. Well, the hardware or the drivers or tractor, something was not that smart back then. So what happened when you yank the cable that separates the audio interface from the software is that you end up with this loud, screeching... Think of, like, the modem sounds from the 90s, like signing into AOL. Like that cranked up to full, vo like, club volume, <laughs> but higher pitched. I mean, it was just this awful, screeching, ear-piercing noise... And it happened for like 10 seconds. And of course, that just interrupted the entire show. It, that was a little bit difficult to recover from. Luckily, you know, it was an early set. It was an early gig for me. It didn't have any, you know, lasting effects or impressions on it. She felt absolutely horrible, of course. But, you know, one of those things that you just kind of laugh off and move on from and hope that it doesn't happen to you in a more serious context than that. So, you know, we all have these kind of stories that happen to us. I have a submission from Tucker Pence. He says, I took a gig that lasted for several months where I made great contacts with the other DJs and the manager. The problem was that I was doing it for free so I could gain experience. I only asked to be paid on nights when I played the whole night as a fill-in rather than my usual happy hour gigs. The owner is a complete idiot who didn't know anything about his club other than how to sit in the corner and drink. Well... That's quite a start. One night the DJ was a little late, the club was still mostly empty, and I was playing in my usual eclectic style. I wasn't about to switch into club mode just yet because it was nearly 10, and I knew the other DJ was about to walk in the door. That didn't stop the owner from freaking out and demanding I pick up the pace. Now mind you, I was doing this for free, and he never once said a word to me, even though his patrons dug what I was doing over those months. I finished the set handed off, and never went back. You know, that's rough when something like that happens. It's hard not to get very upset and freak out. And I, I think that perhaps just finishing your set and then not going back was probably a pretty good way to handle that, only because 
you know, so many people will just blow up and then it, it burns a bridge and it ruins their reputation in the scene. And people see when you have those panic moments, how you react and how you handle that and whether or not you realize it, it really builds their impression of you, what they think of you as a DJ and as a professional. So, you know, we always talk about finding the right gigs in the first place and the right venues, and maybe this just wasn't the one for you. So thank you so much for your submission, Tucker. DJ Joe Flex from Kenya, Africa. All across the world today. This is pretty cool. He says, I'm reminded of a gig at a university auditorium in Kenya. The gig was to start at 7 p.m. and end at midnight. I had the self-discipline to check in at the venue about two hours earlier and make sure everything was okay. Sound, lighting, security, and so on. Things were going well until 10 p.m. when this kid from the audience got so hyped up that he ran into me and hit my laptop stand. He was super high on something, and he came running from the crowd screaming, That's my song! That's my song! <laughs> Instead of hugging me, he hugged my computer and pulled it, unplugging all the wires as it hit the floor, smashed into pieces. Ouch! Luckily, I had carried another. Wow, man with the plan. So I connected it and went on playing music, even though I was obviously pissed off. 30 minutes after the kid had hit my computer, one of the CDJs I was using went off. My hype man, his MC, got creative and controlled the audience as I fixed the CDJ. It took me nearly 40 minutes to fix the problem. Eventually, the CDJ came to life, but then the platter of the other CDJ decided to stop working. <laughs> man, I could not believe my own equipment was doing this to me. I had to switch from relative mode to absolute since I was now dropping the songs using the play button, and I could not scratch. These CDJs were only a week old. I got pissed by what was happening and nearly walked out of the gig, but I ended up using virtual DJ on a friend's computer until morning. There you go, way to pull it through. <laughs> Just one of those situations where when it rains, it pours. I have a submission from Joe Pardo, who you're all probably familiar with if you've ever listened to the Passionate DJ podcast before. You can listen to Joe's show at howtodream.co. That's the Dreamers podcast. And uh, he says, this is the story of how I had to run for my life at the end of a gig. I had made contact a few weeks prior with a guy named Craig, who had been throwing parties at an apartment in New Jersey. Mostly it was college kids that would show up to drink, play beer pong and the like, and these parties often got pretty crazy. This particular Saturday was no exception. There was a double birthday party, and Craig wanted me to spin for it. I said yes, even though two weeks prior I had a problem over at that same apartment. The cops had showed, really early, around 11.30, before the party even happened. I was told that this time there wouldn't be any problem with people calling the police, as it was Easter weekend and most people weren't even home. So I get there and had a few people help me unload. I set everything up in the corner of the living room, right next to the sliding door, which goes out to a balcony overlooking the parking lot. It was nice because I could see the road which the cops would have to travel down, kind of a distance from the apartment. I figured this bought me some time to get the music killed and get everyone out before the cops had time to get up to the apartment. Joe Pardo's got an escape plan. <laughs> Around midnight, the party really started to go off and I had everyone going. But right around that time, I really had to pee, and the bathroom was through a crowd of about 90 people in this tiny apartment. Luckily, a friend of mine happened to be there, so I let him grab the decks for a few minutes as I ran into the bathroom in the hallway. I knocked on the door, which was locked, with about five girls chatting behind it. I explained that I was the DJ and I needed to use the bathroom, now. Well, that wasn't happening, so they pushed me off into a bathroom attached to one of the bedrooms. 
I got there, and there was a girl standing in front of it saying how someone was in there already. As I knocked, this guy peeked his head out and said that his girlfriend was peeing and that they would be out in a minute. I asked the girl in front of me if I could go in front of her because I was the DJ and needed to get back to the decks. She gladly agreed. The guy and girl came out, and I stepped in to a puke-filled bathroom. I peed, got out ASAP, and pushed my way back to the decks. People were standing outside on the steps to get up to the into the apartment. It was completely nuts. Around 1 a.m., the party got really crazy. People standing up on the couches, and the entire floor was bouncing up and down. This girl was pretty much grinding with my table, which my decks didn't care for, and they started skipping like hell. A lot of alcohol was splashed around, and some of it got onto my decks, a few of my records, and my monitor. So I was peeved about that, but most of the time, I had my head turned to the side looking out the porch window for the cops. Around 2 a.m., there was a small fight that got pushed to the outside. My contact, Craig, got two bottles smashed over his head and ended up leaving. But the party picked up steam quickly, and then 2.45 happened. Another fight broke out, and one guy nearly went through my table. At this point, most everyone gets kicked out of the apartment except for friends, which leaves about 15 people in the room, he says. I started to break down while the cops showed up and directed people to get out of the parking lot. Luckily, the cops didn't come up into the apartment. At this point, I was done breaking down, the cops had left, and only a few people were standing outside of the apartment, so I had some people take stuff down and out to my car. I was coming back upstairs to grab my last Mackie monitor in the speaker stand because I handed my other one to someone to carry down and my other crate of records. So I get the speaker off and I'm about to start walking to the door when another freaking fight broke out. This time there were like eight people involved inside the apartment and I was more than ready to go. I started my way to the door when BAM this kid got hit right in the face and went straight down. I eventually get out the door where a handful of girls sat crying and screaming because their boys were fighting inside. I look down the stairs and I see my other Mackie sitting there. Damn it. I make my way down the steps and get to the speaker. At this point, the girls ran down the stairs behind me because the fights made their way out the door. I tried handing the speaker stand off to somebody to carry to my car, which wasn't more than 100 feet away, but none of the girls were even paying attention to me. I look up at the balcony, and immediately I see somebody stick their arm out and point down at me, shouting, Get that effing DJ. Yikes. So I throw the stand under my left armpit and grab the other Mackie in my hand and start slowly making my way to my car, stepping over all the broken glass left from the fights. About halfway to my car, I turn around to see one of the kids getting pushed into the stairs railing, which gave way and broke off. I turned my head back around and ran to throw my stuff into my car. Finally, the police pulled into the street, having taken an alternate route. They were a nice little distance away from me, but I was still rushing to get the hell out of there. I finally managed to get packed up when a guy came over to make sure I was okay. Then he said, you'd better get out of here, man. The girl called her brother and told him to come with his gun. Holy cow. Completely freaked, I got in my car and put the pedal to the metal. Thank God I'm still alive. As you can probably imagine, I won't be playing any gigs like that again. (laughs) Holy cow, Joe. That one might take the cake for most dangerous story. I'm glad that you were safe, and uh, I can see why you don't really do much of the club and party circuit these days, (laughs) as you mentioned in episode 15. Speaking of episode 15, we had another return guest, Casey Lane, who is super awesome, and she submitted this hilarious story. She's hailing out of Singapore. She says, Before one of my sets, 
I was chilling behind the booth with a couple other DJs. At the time, I was nine months pregnant, and my husband, who typically stays home, came out to show support. He excused himself from the conversation to go to the toilet, and I watch him as he walks toward the restroom. One of the janitors stops him and holds him to the side, and I see this hilarious expression span across his face as he ducks into the hallway. When he returns, I see the janitors taking pictures of the floor. Is it a broken glass? Is it a dead animal? What is this thing that's so intriguing? When my husband returns, he says, Someone took a shit on the floor, and it's the size of a Subway sandwich. <laughs> you know, I'm going to break from the story here to say that when I first read the story, the first thing that popped in my head was, I wonder if it's a six-inch sub or a foot long, but I digress. I swear I never laughed so hard in my life. For the next half hour before my set, can you imagine the conversation? Who was it? They were a real party pooper. And the inevitable diarrhea song. During my entire set, I just couldn't get what happened out of my head. Of course, the crowd had no idea what had happened, but they seemed to be living in the moments of joy, hilarity, and spontaneity. The next day, I realized I had forgotten my flash drive and made plans to pick it up during office hours. When I arrived in the office, the staff had been watching the video recording of the suspect in action. No, I didn't watch it, but I did get the scoop on who it was, and I got my flash drive back. <laughs> That's an awesome story, Casey. I'll leave it to you to take uh, someone crapping on the floor and turning it into a positive gig. <laughs> I have a submission from Trip Turlington, who is a, a good friend of mine, awesome DJ and producer, and he's been in this for a long time. He says, oh man, I've got a really bad one for you. Between 2000 and 2003, I was doing very well in the Midwest scene and was traveling all over Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee, even having reached out to Florida and Maryland a few times, playing a bunch of raves and club gigs. During that time, most of my sets consisted of what we called progressive back then, though I think the kids call it deep house now, I don't know, he says, <laughs> with lots of tribal and tech house peppered throughout and usually progressing my sets to end with some epic trance. This landed me in a lot of gigs where I was opening for a few of the bigger names in those genres that passed through. I was booked to be direct support and open for a very big name in the trance and progressive scene. It was maybe 2000, 2001. And just a side note, per request, I've changed the names of the headliner and other people involved here just to make sure that there are no uh, <laughs> repercussions from telling the story. Long story very short, one of my traveling buddies and I arrived in the city, got dinner with some of our local friends, and then went out for drinks. When we got to the club, about half an hour before my set, the promoter had at some point decided to change the time slots and never told me. So instead of me, the out-of-towner, and second build name on the flyer, being the headliner's opener, he put me in the second room and put a relatively unknown local I'd never heard of in my spot. As he and I are arguing about this, I noticed the club was pretty empty. The club probably held 400 or 500 people, but there were less than 100. And I'll just interject here that the name of the headliner that he gave me is definitely worthy of pulling more than 100 people back in the early 2000s, so we'll just leave it there. My traveling companion then helped me contain my composure and drive the conversation toward just pay me what we agreed on and I'll play where and when you tell me to. I didn't come all the way out there to get bumped and not get the money that we agreed to, as this was my only source of income at the time, so I refused to go on until he paid me. The promoter handed me my envelope and I went on in the second room. Word got around that I was playing there and the main room cleared. 
My room had the majority of the attendance, and everyone was having a good time. This was fine for a little while. The local, who somehow found a way to steal my spot, wasn't happy about it, but no one really cared about that. But when he was done and it was time for the headliner to go on, the promoter came to me and said that he had to shut me down. 30 minutes into my set, mind you. So that people, the hundred or so people, mind you, would go back into the main room. I warned him that if he shut me down, that I would take the party with me. He tried to plead with me, saying things like, What do you want me to do? This guy is world-renowned, and he came to play for people, not an empty room. I told him, Well, and you should have had your opener, who had the draw, play to open for your headliner. There may or may not have been some choice words flown back and forth and tempers flying at that point. Then the power to my booth went off. So I grabbed my records, needles, headphones, and invited everyone within earshot back to my hotel room that the promoter paid for. <laughs> Ron and I left with about 30 or so people in tow, and we went back to my hotel, where we all danced to mixtapes in the parking lot until the cops came and shut us down. That promoter and I had bad blood for quite some time, blacklisting each other from every circle we knew of. When most people heard my side of the story, though, they generally sided with me since there's little to no justification for the actions that led up to that incident. In the end, he still only pulled a hundred or so people for a very solid headliner, which sucks, for a time when someone like that should have easily packed the club. This just tells me the show was very poorly promoted by a bad promoter. Thank you for that story, Trip. I really appreciate that. You know, when you've got shows like this that have these tensions rising because things aren't going correctly because nothing ever goes perfectly when it comes to putting on a show like this and you've got an upset dj and an upset promoter it's easy for those temper tempers to just go flying out of control thanks a lot for your submission trip that's a great story i have one from dj purple he says i'll be glad to indulge you in a horror story my worst gig to date was my very first battle of the djs that took place when i was stationed in the uk at alkenbury the year was 1994 I had recently arrived there in the summer and had successfully landed a weekly gig spinning with three other guys in the town of Peterborough. Well, there was the announcement on base of a battle of the DJs. The rules of engagement were pretty simple, open to all genres, and each DJ would get a certain amount of time to showcase their skills. The crowd reaction would determine the winner, and immediately following the event was an after party. I figured why not, and thought that I could spread the love of house music to my fellow Air Force personnel on the base. I do not recall how many participants there were, but I'm sure I was in the middle of the lineup in terms of the sequence of performances. The first guy went on and did his thing, and the crowd showed some love. Next guy did his thing, and again the crowd reacted. Same thing for the next person. Then it was my turn. I was announced as DJ Purple, and then it was time to get to work. I played my tracks, and the only thing that could be heard was the MC, desperately attempting to generate some sort of reaction from the crowd, because they were dead silent. No cheers, no booze, nothing. Just everybody sitting motionless and staring. I continued to play because I was feeling the house groove, as was the MC who I knew to enjoy house music as well. I ended my set and there was still silence. When the next few guys went on, there was noise from the crowd again. Then the time came to tally the vote. First guy, cheers. Second guy, cheers. Me, silence. Then the remaining guys got their votes by crowd noise. The winner was crowned, and it was on to the after party. I, however, had absolutely no intention of sticking around for the after party. I was embarrassed beyond belief and was nearly in tears. I promptly departed and headed for my dorm room. 
So there's my horror story. The feedback I've gotten since was that the crowd didn't quote-unquote understand house music and didn't know exactly how to react to what I was doing, whereas they quote-unquote knew hip-hop and R&B. When they heard something that was familiar, they knew how to react. On a flip note, the story doesn't quite end there because there was a bright side to the ordeal. A couple nights later, I played the same records at a weekly gig in Peterborough and received lots of love from the crowd. They understood it because that's basically how it was there anyway. That's a great story, DJ Purple. I, um, I'm glad that it ended up working out for you in the end. And it's just another testament to that whole playing the right gigs in the first place thing. And you don't perhaps realize that you can encounter that even in a contest. But crowd reaction matters no matter what who the crowd is that you're playing to. So uh, good job for pulling it through there in the end. Thank you so much for submitting your story. I have an audio submission from Mr. Shifter, a great DJ out of Columbus, and he wants to tell his story in his own voice. So let's give that a listen right now. Yo, what's up, passionate DJ? This is Mr. Shifter. I'm a DJ from Columbus, Ohio, and I'll share with you my worst gig story. I was back in 2005, and I just got signed to Breakbeat Science, a record label out of New York City. And I had just landed like my first big out-of-state gig. Um, Disco Donnie, who's a legendary promoter from New Orleans, um, he booked me for his festival that he does every year near Mardi Gras. Uh, it's called Zulu. It's just always a bonkers festival that happens every year. You know, a lot of the best DJs um, play there. So I was really stoked about that. Uh, I carpooled down with a bunch of friends to play that. And... Um, this was in 2005 and um, Final Scratch from Stanton had just hit the market and you know that was the kind of the first um, interface um, you know to use timecode vinyl and it was still really really buggy at the time but I'd had pretty good luck with it so um, and I was just really excited about using it because you could play unreleased stuff and not have to cut dub plates and it was just uh, I was really excited about using that so I brought that with me and I was playing for by far the biggest crowd I'd ever played for. Um, just a massive room of people. And um, the set was going really, really well. The crowd was going crazy. And um, I had just dropped like the biggest track of the moment. And it's called Mr. Majestic by Caliber. I just, that was like the one track that I couldn't wait to drop um, for that crowd. So um, drop that tune. Crowd is just going ballistic. And silence. Final scratch crashes right after the track drops, and everyone in the room is just staring at me with confused blank stares, and I just want to throw up. I'm so mortified, I can't even describe the feeling in my stomach. Um, so I have to quickly reboot my laptop. It took like a minute and a half, two minutes, maybe longer, who knows. Um, and people just start filtering out of the room. And, you know, I finally get it back up and running and kind of, you know, manage to salvage the rest of the set, you know, over the next half hour, 45 minutes or however much time I had left. You know, some people came back in the room, but thank God Donnie wasn't there when it happened. I mean, he probably would have killed me, kicked me out of the event 
So, you know, to this day, that's just really, really stuck with me. Anytime I'm using a controller or a laptop, I mean, this is 10 years later, I'm still paranoid to this day just from that experience. Um, so anyways, uh, keep up the great work and uh, take care. Peace. All right, great story there from Mr. Shifter. Love how he included the sound clip there from the uh, relevant track. That was very cool. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do that. You know, I've got another story of my own. There was this time I was playing in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's a pretty decent show, big headliner, and lots of people there. And I was invited to play the after party, which was actually at a house that was there in town somewhere in Cincinnati. I didn't really know much about the place, but I knew a lot of the other people that were playing the after party, and so I went ahead and agreed, uh, even though I'd never really checked it out beforehand. And I get to this gig, and you know, I went to the show first, had a good time, um, ended up getting pulled over on the way to the after party where I was going to play at like 3 or 3.30 in the morning, had to do a sobriety test on the side of the road, probably with a bunch of my friends driving past looking at me. I was not drunk or drinking, by the way, and I passed with flying colors, but it's still embarrassing. <laughs> so I finally make it over there. It's three-something in the morning. And this place, how can I put it? It was a little cracked out. Um, I, I walked in, and there was a DJ playing on the first floor, a pretty well-known DJ out of Columbus, actually. So he... he made a two-hour trip to play this house party. And I'm kind of crawling around, and I'm looking for somebody to tell me where to go because there were like three rooms in this pretty large house. I finally find the place that I'm supposed to play. It's like two floors up in this attic in this tiny little bedroom full of graffiti. It really just kind of looked like a crack house, if I'm being perfectly honest. Which, you know, whatever, I'll, I can dig the warehouse vibe and the, you know, the, the grimy rave setting. So, no big deal. I go and I'm looking around this kind of makeshift DJ booth that they've built, and there's nothing there. There's no sound hookup. There's no power. There's nothing. Nothing for me to play on. Nothing for me to even hook my controller up to to play on. And all I could find were a pair of old speakers and bare wire sticking out of them. So I spent the next 15 minutes or so looking for the person that booked me or anybody who was involved with the event to ask what the deal was because I was already 15, 20 minutes into when my set was supposed to start and somebody was going to start after me. And eventually I everybody was so drunk, etc., I'll say... <laughs> that I couldn't find anyone to help me, and about 40 minutes after I was supposed to start, I just packed all my stuff up and went home. It just doesn't always work out, and at a certain point, it just feels like, you know, there, I've got way too much of a sunk cost here. I'm not going to fight with all these inebriated zombies just to get 10 minutes of DJ time in, so wasn't the best gig for me to sign up for, and I'm sure that uh, I'm not the only person that's found myself in a situation like that, but, you know, generally, house parties are where it's at, man. I really like playing house parties, but this one was just a little bit rough. I was, uh, I think I was kind of like Joe in the story earlier, where I was just waiting for the cops to come in and put everybody on the ground. <laughs> I have a story from DJ ESQ. He says, last year I was filling in for another DJ at a Christmas party. 
The previous week, I went to the venue to see what they had and what I had to bring. I met up with the floor manager, and I got small details of the party. A wireless mic will be in the room that I'm DJing in, and speakers will be set. Now, on the day of the party, I'm setting up, and I find the manager that I spoke to earlier that week. I ask him where the wireless mic is located, and he tells me that it's in the AV room. So I go into the AV room, and there's no mic. I find the manager again, and he swears that the mic should be in the room. He tells me to ask the other DJ in the room next door if he may have taken it. So I go to the room and ask the other DJ. Let me tell you, this guy was a piece of work. He says, oh, this mic is mine. All the equipment in the AV room is mine. Don't go into that room and touch my effing stuff, or I'll sue you and the piece of trash you work for. <laughs> wow, talk about an overreaction. I didn't take that very lightly. I guess not. So I went back to the manager and told him what happened. Instead of helping me out, he takes off hiding. What? Who are these people? So I'm here, all set, with no wireless mic, and guests are starting to come in. This douchebag of a DJ comes into my room and starts testing the wireless mic in my room and tells me, oh, I'm in this room tomorrow night. I'm just making sure all things are working out. By this time, I'm seeing red. I walk into the room where he was DJing, because his party doesn't start for another hour, and I'm thinking that I need an XLR that's at least 50 to 100 feet or so. I found one right under DJ Douchebag's monitor speaker that wasn't hooked up. So I grabbed it and boosted the monitor speaker's base to the highest point where it would trip off the surge-protected outlet to the room. Wait, you did what? Oh, I don't, well, I don't know if I want to endorse that. <laughs> As the night was going on, I started to notice more people on my dance floor than before. I didn't care and kept the jam going. By the end of the night, a waiter came up to me and told me what happened. You killed the party. The other DJ in the room next to you couldn't get his speakers going, so the wedding party came into yours because of the music you were playing. It seems that DJ Douchebag had a set of wireless speakers, but the XLR I borrowed was actually for his master output. He ended up using a bad pair of RCA to quarter inch, which just couldn't get the job done. I didn't keep the XLR, but if he wasn't an ass and had a better attitude, maybe the night would have worked out better. Thank you for your submission. I hope that your future Christmas parties and weddings go much more smoothly than that one. I have a submission from Simon Hardwick. He says, Hi, David. From my too many years of memories, I have to recall the worst event from many years ago when I was starting out. I did a wedding for a Greek couple in London. All was going well. Bride and groom, first dance, requests, backing music to the speeches, etc., Everything was completed as planned. Dinner was then served along with around six bottles of whiskey per table for around 200 plus guests. During, wait a minute. Six bottles of whiskey per table for 200 guests. Unless you had one 200 person table, that sounds like a whole lot of whiskey to me. Holy cow. <laughs> Where's the story going? Let's find out. During the party, things... Things went perfectly until the whiskey started kicking in, of course. As the guests became more than lively, they staged a booth takeover to get on the mic, transforming the set into some kind of karaoke session as the PA got hijacked by the mob. Okay, <laughs> that sounds about right. Suffice it to say, I recovered my gear as fast as possible, which at the time were uh, two Technics 1200s, and my crates, and went to collect my fee. I was paid, fair enough, 
but protecting my gear that I invested my savings in and my body from getting crushed by around 40 very drunk guys and girls was not what I had planned for. <laughs> As with all things, you learn to deal with difficult situations. Fortunately, I moved on after about a year or so from the wedding circuit to small clubs, which proved to be much more stable thanks to security and organization. Hmm, interesting. Experience, good and bad, is great to have. Even the odd power outage, equipment failure, etc. At least you get used to dealing with the ups and downs of sharing music to entertain. It's a great story. Thank you so much, Simon. I have a submission. I'm going to try to get this name right. It's Jolt Entra. And he says, hey, David, this happened in the late 90s in Hungary. A DJ friend of mine was booked for an all-night gig at a club we never heard of in some remote town in the countryside. <laughs> I went along with him to help out with the lights, because at the time I was working as a laser light jockey at techno, house, and trance parties, which just started to become popular back then. We set up the booth, and my friend started to play his usual funky-slash-hip-hop set. However, the audience just stood there in shock. Before we realized what was happening, the angry club owner burst into the booth and asked what the hell we were playing. It turned out that they had booked the wrong DJ by the same name, and instead of house, they got hip-hop. Yikes. <laughs> there we were with around 500 guests, an angry owner, and a bag full of wrong CDs. Ouch. My friend got pissed off and refused to play anything. But the owner, his bouncers, and some members of the crowd made, us, made it clear that leaving was not an option, and not playing the music they wanted would have adverse health effects. Yikes. They take their music seriously in Hungary. I happened to have a few house mix CDs in my bag, so out of desperation, I started to play one of them. It worked and saved the situation for about eight minutes, by which time people realized that it was a mix of another famous DJ and started to complain again, and rightfully so. At the end, I managed to remix those CDs, those mix CDs, again and again, learning while doing so, and survived the night with just four CDs. That was my first all-night set, oh man, and one to remember. That was your first all-night set. Wow, what a memory. For <laughs> I'm surprised you stuck with it. That would be enough to rattle anybody. I do have an anonymous submission that somebody sent to me. And he says, I've got a story that would rock your socks. So unfortunately, I'm still too disturbed by it to talk about it openly. But I will mention that it involves a felonious assault and about $1,700 of dental work. I've been to raves and parties all over the Midwest for 20 years. I've never experienced anything like that. People have been giving multiple-year prison bids for less than what happened. And I'm not exaggerating or being dramatic. All I can say is the people responsible should feel extremely fortunate that no legal or criminal action was taken against them. I'm not trying to bring down the vibe. I'm just being honest and answering the post. Bar none, it was the craziest, worst thing ever at a party I've experienced. Violence has no place in the scene, and up until then, I didn't even think it existed. Yeah, you know, so much for plur, man. Back in those days, it was all about that peace, love, unity, respect, and you don't really expect to run into violence and fights, and unfortunately, that's been a recurring theme here on the podcast, and it's unfortunate, but worth acknowledging that those are situations that you can run into out there in the wild, as I say. You know, you can go a long way by keeping a cool head even when the situation that you're presented with is not your own fault. 
maintaining that sense of professionalism will really go a long way, like I said, for maintaining your reputation and people's perception of you and who wants to work with you in the future. So it's a little rough and it's a little surprising when you encounter that in a situation where you're generally there to have a good time, you're feeling the music, you feel like you're all there under this umbrella, this you know thing that you all love and share together, and then suddenly there's people just knocking teeth out. It's ridiculous, but it's one of those things that is possible to run into no matter what you're doing and where you are, and I hope that you all avoid those situations and stay safe out there, all right? I'd like to end the podcast today with an email that I wrote a while back. This is a message that I tend to send out to VIP listers as soon as they sign up for my newsletter. Uh, within a week or so, I usually send this message to them. It's kind of uh, an auto-respond kind of thing because it's like I want to make sure that they know that they're on the list and that I am going to send them these things. And so one of the thing, first things that I send people is this story of mine, and it goes like this. Back in October of 2010, I was asked to DJ at a small, recurring, outdoor-gated event that happens in my hometown. I gladly obliged, played the event, and had a good time. After my set, I broke down my equipment and got out of the way for the next DJ. I placed my items on the back of the stage and was standing around close by, talking with my girlfriend and other friends who were present at the event. We socialized and had a good time, eventually wandering around a bit for one reason or another. Well, long story short, my equipment had gone missing. At first, I didn't think much of it, since I knew, or was at least acquainted with, most of the people present at the event, including those running it. I figured that it, being in nondescript black bags, could have easily been carried away by one of the other DJs, or got mixed in with the other sound equipment, or something like that. Of course, I immediately began asking around, and wasn't able to turn up any results. I'll cut out some of the mundane details here in the interest of being concise, but suffice it to say, a week went by and I had no good leads. Of course, by this point, I'm already well into suspecting foul play. I had been contacting other DJs and quote-unquote scene people present at the event, asking for advice, and made a police report. Here's a list of the things that went missing. A 15-inch Apple MacBook Pro, which I bought new for $2,500 not including all the software that I had added since I owned it. An Allen & Heath Zone 2D, which was an audio interface and MIDI controller combination that, when I bought it, cost $700. A pair of Audio-Technica headphones, $100-ish or so, and just all kinds of miscellaneous cables, adapters, anything else that was in my backpack, which was also gone. So basically just a full backpack full of stuff, including my very expensive laptop. As it turned out, one of the people heavily involved with the event had stolen my gear. He returned the Zone 2D to me to try and save face before I knew that he was the culprit. Not only that, but he sold it directly to another local DJ. A DJ that I had once booked, no less. Now, I realize that I'm not the first DJ to ever get his equipment jacked, nor was this the first time I'd ever been robbed. But there were a number of reasons that this incident was particularly painful. Firstly, this wasn't just some random one-off event. This was something that was put on by my community for my community. A group effort put on by a lot of people in my city that have a passion for underground dance music. It's a family-friendly, dog-friendly cookout with great tunes as a center point. 
something I've been involved with on multiple occasions and that I had always tried to give much support. As much as it would have sucked to have this happen at some random nightclub, it had a bit more sting to happen at something like this. And then there was the actual individual that wronged me. This was somebody that predated me in my own scene. He was well-known locally and well-respected as a DJ. Someone who had given a lot of support to the scene before I did. Someone who had complimented me on my own DJing well before this incident. Someone who, unfortunately, had a drug problem. Finally, there's the fact that it seemed like a whole lot of people knew what had happened well before I ever did. I don't know how or when the information started floating around, but it was two years before I ever even knew who took my gear and what happened to it afterwards. All of these things combined to make a particularly painful situation. It wasn't just that I had been robbed, I'd been wronged. And somehow that's different. Now obviously it's been several years since this incident happened. I have all new equipment now, and I'm much more vigilant when it comes to keeping an eye on my gear at a gig. But I didn't give it up. I took it as a lesson and kept on doing my thing. I had to remember all the reasons that I had gotten into this in the first place, and didn't want to lose everything because of one bad incident. I tell you the story not to just say, keep an eye on your stuff, but to implore you to keep remembering the reasons that you're involved with this whole DJ thing. It's important to approach our music and our performances with drive and conviction, and to remember the things that make us happy. If I had only been focused on superficial things when it came to my DJing and event planning, I would probably have already given it up. But because I know where my passions lie, and I remove myself from the BS as much as possible, I've been able to keep enjoying one of the things that brings me happiness. The only thing that's really changed? I take pictures of the serial number of every new piece of gear I buy. Make everything you do to support your hobby or career something worth celebrating. After all, isn't that what a passion is? That email and many others you can receive by signing up for the Passionate DJ VIP list. If you would like to know more about that, go to passionatedj.com forward slash VIP. If you have any kind of burning question that you would like for me to answer or to track the answer down to, right here on the podcast, all you have to do is go to passionatedj.com forward slash ask, A-S-K. You can leave me a voicemail using your cell phone, your iPad, your webcam, anything that has a microphone on it. You can leave me, I think it's up to 90, 90 seconds or a couple minutes. Leave me a voicemail, ask me your question, and I would love to get back to you. Guys, thank you so much for joining me on this Just for Fun show. Um, I hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope that I turned it into a bit of a message there at the end for you, give you something to think about. And come on back for next episode. We'll see you for episode 18. Take care and have fun. Thanks for listening to the Passionate DJ Podcast at www.passionatedj.com. Check out the fan page at facebook.com slash passionatedj or on Twitter at DJ with Passion. And always remember to keep on spinning.